Hello again and welcome to Thoughts on the Social World, socialworldpodcast.com. I'm Dave Niven and you're very welcome. Now today, I've got a very special interview with Tessa Munt, MP. Now Tessa's the MP for Wells and Somerset. She's the PPS to Vince Cable, the business secretary. But more importantly, in my view, she's also a champion of the disadvantaged and the vulnerable in society. And for the last several years in Parliament, she's worked tirelessly, apart from constituency matters, in championing groups and issues to do with that up and down the country. She's one of seven MPs who were absolutely pivotal in driving for the um, constituted inquiries that the Home Secretary has now put together on historical and institutional child abuse. She is a survivor of um, sexual abuse herself as a youngster and uh, went through hell um, in coming to terms with that. And it took a long, long time, which she discusses. Um, she's an inspiration for other survivors. She's uh, someone who has a very sensitive idea of the world. And I really commend this interview to you to listen to. So without further ado... Tessa Munt. Welcome, Tessa. Hello. Yes, thank you very much. Sorry, I didn't realize. And could you just tell us how that came about and, and why particularly you focused on this subject? Yes, I suppose it's something I've cared about all my life. I mean, all of my life I've worked in what I suppose you might broadly term as service, um, whether I've been a teacher, whether I've worked, in, I spent some years in hotels, I've worked in all sorts of different disciplines, um, but always serving people. And I suppose, firstly, that was something that was instilled in me by my grandfather. But secondly, it adds to your experience all the way through, doesn't it? And my sense was that that was what I was put here to do that sounds a bit trite but it's true and I didn't have a very good start in my own life um well perhaps to be fair I didn't have a very good time during my um the time from when I was sort of 11 to about 17 18 um and I've always felt that I might have the ability to do something to help people um people like me who didn't have a particularly nice start mm. So public service was really what you felt almost driven to in some very, respects. Well, very much so, but also encouraged to, pulled towards by my grandfather, who was an amazing man, um, who, when I was very, very small, he was he was the absolute light of my life. He was a fantastic influence. I didn't know it. and You don't know these things until you're an adult, do you? But um, what he did was he said to me, right, this is from when I was so small. The first thing I can really remember was him saying to me, you know, you can change the world, child. You can change the world. And don't let anyone tell you you can't just because you're a woman, because it doesn't work like that. And he told me that from when I could walk right the way through till when I lost him in my mid-20s. And But as we developed, as we our relationship developed, and I was very, very close to my grandfather. He was an absolutely amazing man. And he... Then as I was sort of, I don't know, maybe in my middle to late teens... 
um, he used to say to me, and you've had, he used to add on to that, um, you've had a, a very good education, you're very lucky compared with people in different parts of the world. Now, he lived in East Africa, um, he was in Kenya. Um, so the comparison was quite stark because I used to travel to see him, but he he reminded me that I had had a good had had good opportunities. I had had a good education, and that part of what his natural expectation was, he wasn't preaching at me, but he just sort of said, "Well, it's your duty really to pay that back in some way, um, and to make sure that other people benefit from the opportunities you've had." And I just didn't think that was strange. That was just what life was like. That was how it was going to be. And um, you don't know anything except what you're told, do you? No, uh, no. amazing what sticks with you. It stuck with it. Well, it's still there now. <laughs> no, it's good. And it sounds like he was a bit of a rock in your life. Absolutely. He was fantastic. Um, the difficulty was he wasn't in this country. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And uh, so I, I saw him during my long holidays, really, and... Um, but when he came to the UK, which was occasionally, but it was, um, I'd have loved to have spent much, much more time with him and my grandmother. And it would have been nice if Skype existed then, I suspect. <laughs> yes, goodness me. Yeah. I used to have long conversations with him. Long, of course, in those days was about a quarter of an hour, 20 minutes, and they mm. used to cost an absolute fortune. Yeah. Well, the only thing I remember about my grandfather, to be honest, the advice ever he gave me, but that stuck too. It says, was never invest your money in anything that eats or needs repainting. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But he was a huge, he was a huge influence on me. And I just, you know, the other thing he did was actually he encouraged me when I was about sort of, I don't know, 17 or so to to do voluntary work as well as what I was doing in my daytime. And I just thought that was normal. So I just thought everybody had a voluntary life and a, and a paid life, if you like. I mean, I didn't start work until I was 19, but... All the way through, all the way through my life, I've done two things until I became an MP, of course, when it actually that is um, it takes up sort of 18 hours of every day, seven days a week, which is great. I love it. Um, but it is it's different. Um, it doesn't leave any opportunity really to do very much in a voluntary fashion. But that really meant I had sort of, I don't know, 33 years, 34 years of of doing voluntary work as well as being paid for what I did in my ordinary life. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty all-consuming being an MP, I mean, as far as I understand it, and I'm sure you would echo that. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, okay, so that time, during that time, when you had this kind of, if you like, international contact with your grandfather, but you also mentioned your adolescent years, and I know oh. that you've said that you were a survivor of abuse yourself. Yes, I am. And, and effectively, though, we're not going to talk about the detail of that. We've agreed that. But yes. essentially, everything that flows from that has in some way influenced your view of the world and your view of what the world needs, I suspect. Hugely, hugely. Because the thing I, I mean, I had a relatively comfortable um, well, it, I had a roof over my head, I had enough food to eat, I had probably, technically, people would have looked at me and thought I was quite lucky. We weren't rich, um, we didn't have holidays abroad or anything like that, um, but, you know, I lived in a very nice place in a very beautiful part of the country and, you know, it is, it's fantastic to be able to look out on trees and grass and, you know, so it's a real opportunity. Not everybody has that, I recognise that. So, I would not have been identified as somebody who had problems. 
of any sort because I came from a very sort of middle class existence, I suppose, and everyone would have thought everything was absolutely fantastic, but it was not. Um, and that all the way through my 20s, I was slowly, slowly crashing. Um, I had a fantastic partner who my um, I finished that relationship after 10 years because I couldn't take it anymore. And I just was, you know, I damaged people around me for which I'm eternally sorry. Um, but that was the impact of not being able to form relationships properly. And I just, I, to be honest, if I hadn't met the person I met at, when I was about 29, 30, I, I met that individual and thought, mm, you might be somebody that I might be able to tell what's happened to me one day and you might not run away when you find out. And so when I embarked on that second major relationship in my life with all of the sorrow that was attached to the first, but I still didn't know how to do anything. I didn't know how to get mm. myself out of what mm. had happened. I didn't know how to change my behaviour. All I knew was that had I not met that person, I would have probably finished my own life um, because the burden, the stress, the anxiety, everything was so enormous that I really couldn't cope. And, you know, I don't think of myself as somebody who can't cope now at all. I was so lucky to have met that individual and so lucky that when eventually, three years later, I said something, um, <laughs> Actually, it's a bit of an exaggeration to say I said something. What happened was I I asked that person to ask me questions because all I could say was yes or no. Mm -hmm. And when I was saying yes or no, I was saying, and ask me the next question, and ask me the next question. And I can just remember the look of horror on his face as he realised what I was trying to get him to ask me about. Um, and slowly, slowly, slowly... I managed to say in yeses and noes what had happened to me. But, you know, your time comes. There is a special time when you have enough trust. Maybe if you're lucky, you have enough trust in somebody that you're able to real, reveal what has happened. And so I, um, I was able to go through. I had counselling. I relived the nightmares of what had happened, which was absolutely terrible. I can't tell you. So at the age of sort of 32, 30, 32, 33, maybe, um, I relived the whole thing. I can remember one day being waking up, finding this gentleman having grabbed me by the first floor window at which I had run from the bed um, during the night, just trying to get away. And being absolutely terrified by the fact that I'd nearly thrown myself through a plate glass window. Mm. Um, and at that point, I started to seek some help in the way of counselling. And um, that was fantastic. I was so, so lucky. I'm so grateful to the people who helped me through that, what was an intensely difficult, intensely difficult period in my life. But, my God, when you learn to talk about it, and it takes a very long time because the words are so dreadful to say that when you get to that 
point where you can say something or you can communicate your difficulty to somebody whom you trust and then have the support of other people. And I had the support of my family and I had the support of my closest friends. Um, and I have to say that after, I suppose, a pretty bumpy year or so, I not only would classify myself as a survivor, but actually I think I'm a thriver. You know, I've done and I, I hope that everything I've said in the last few months encourages others to believe that there is a time when you can tell people, you know, there will come a time when you can tell people what's happened. And when you tell, then you can start, once you share that information, you can start to get better. And I feel so sorry for all of those people who've tried to share Mm. and haven't been heard okay just let's take it a little step further if i might thanks for that mm. that was I was, that was really good of you to share that thanks That's um right. you will be being listened to now by a lot of social workers and the first yes. thing i suspect many of them will tell you is that um there is no uh boundaries when it comes to child abuse in terms of um background gender ethnic origin income Yes. Um, class, whatever, and your your picture of your your environment and your upbringing is is not unusual for abuse to happen as well within the so-called sort of comfortable middle class. Yes, um, and I, th I think people must recognise that <clears throat> we don't think it's unusual <clears throat> if people want to come forward and talk about it from that kind of background. But the other thing too is, I think your inner strength that you found now. And the terrible journey that you went to to discover that, effectively, you're now translating and sort of channeling, if I might say, towards others, as you just mentioned. Yes. And maybe a message I could ask you, I'd just expand that message, if you would, a little bit, because there's so many thousands, let's be honest, of survivors of abuse up and down the country. Some don't like being called victims. I think that's fair. I think survivors is, is a more adequate word, but you know, it's up to the individual. But yes, just, I, I mean, I don't feel like a victim now, but that's because mm. I was able to go through a period of recovery. Mm. What messages would you like to give? To, say, say somebody was listening to this or somebody who, who had access to somebody who they thought should, you know, needs help. What kind of message would you give about how to tell, when to tell, how to find the strength, how to find the right person? It's so difficult, isn't it, sometimes? Yes, it is. And I think there's lots of different ways in which people will will express themselves. Um, the, the one thing I think that I, I, mean, you know, I am not somebody who's ever been short of words. In fact, I would have been described in my early 20s um, when all of this stuff had happened and, and had stopped, to be fair. Um, um, in my early 20s, I would have been described as somebody who was incredibly sociable. I was the life and soul of the party. Um, I was right in the thick of it. I was probably quite um, mischievous at school. Um, and um, I, I do remember thinking at school, why doesn't someone stop me and ask me what's wrong? But actually, on reflection now, of course... I know that no one would have been able to see that necessarily. Someone might have asked the question, but probably not because I was doing okay. But I think that the message is to those who are 
potentially um, the the recipient of information and hopefully the person who's in a position of trust is that you you can only wait until somebody's ready and it made me so cross I was listening to somebody banging on in parliament yesterday about you know wouldn't you encourage people wouldn't the home secretary encourage people to come forward and tell what's mm. happened to them now mm. you just can't do that it's a complete lack of understanding I and mean, the only thing i can probably say about the person who said that is that they've never been probably never been the subject of sexual abuse yeah. that's the only thing yeah. you could say about that but everything else is not a given it's it comes to it's about trust and it's about integrity and it's an understanding that when the time is right it's right and only the person who's the you know, maybe surviving on the most basic level but a survivor yes um you're probably a victim until you you may be a victim. Yeah, I, I, I would have considered myself a victim all the way through my 20s because it was it was impacting on my behaviour. I became a survivor once I'd told and had my had gone through that period of counselling and come out what I know is the other side. You know, told everybody that whom I cared about deeply um, and come out the other side. That was the point at which I was surviving properly. And then after that... And, you know, maybe took a couple of years or something, or three or four, or five years or whatever. I then started to thrive because actually I started to live my life. But it's all about those who listen and those who watch. And you know, watch the way that people behave. Watch the way that what do people do when when are people when people are self destructive? Mm. Um, there's a reason, and mm. it's not the natural human state to want to harm yourself or others or you know damage things around you or damage you know animals or damage plants or you know yeah. goodness me you know it all, all we're all the product of our experiences okay let, let, let's can i just move on in a little bit sure. we'll, we'll, we'll kind of widen it <coughs> to yeah. kind of yeah, the, yeah. the national picture um yes. now you talked about trust and integrity and honesty I'm afraid that there is a perception, which I'm sure you'd agree with, everybody would, that, that there's a lot of difficulty out of there trusting, um, if you like, the administration at the moment in terms of, um, well, there was the OneList report published about public records. There's the, the kind of lurching towards kind of trying to find a chair for this national panel that um, Theresa May set up. There's a, there's a lot of kind of difficulty at the moment in actually feeling locked into kind of a trusting relationship with the government in terms of actually the wider picture of sexual abuse, the wider picture of historical abuse in the country. And I'm sure you, it was something you would want, but I mean, people are saying that records are getting missed and, and missing and being destroyed and there's an incomplete kind of um, trust at the moment. Would, would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, well, I think it, there's a level of distrust, there's dishonesty, there's a lack of integrity. Um, and part of the problem, perhaps, is that, you know, I, I'm, what am I, 55, and no one, no one would have believed me if I'd said what was happening to me in my teens. No one. You know, there is not a person on earth. It was when I was mm, in my 
20s, I suppose, late 20s, when Childline came into its own and suddenly there was a voice for children under 18s. Um, and the government, there, there are a lot of people who probably realise with horror that they're just about to be exposed as the as for the for the behaviour for which they are wholly responsible um, and for the things they've done to other people. Mm. And I, I would say quite safely that, you know, if you went back to the 70s and the 80s, things that were happening, records that were kept, whatever, it was just, it just wasn't, no one had any concept of how widespread this was. And nobody stopped to think about it, mm. about how wrong it was. I mean, it was certainly the case that, you know, people would have been sent to prison if they'd been found, but nobody believed young people or children or whatever. And, you know, those with mental health problems were tucked away and those mental health problems come from somewhere, you know, you're, mm. you know. Now that there's a, a, a greater understanding, if you want, let's put it this way, let's look at the half full sort of picture. Now yes. that there's a greater understanding in, in the community with, unfortunately, all the sort of scandals and cases and Jimmy Savills and goodness knows what else that will come forward. Um, and people are trusting authorities more that they will be hand, they will be dealt with more sensitively and believed more and young people will be believed more. And if you like, we're kind of trying to clean out the stables. Um how do you envisage the future in terms of, I mean, in terms of the protection of our children? Because over the years, have people understood that the sheer, people haven't really understood the sheer volume and therefore no. the resources that are going to be needed to deal with that volume when it comes forward? I'll, I mean, let's take something very close to you geographically. The Somerset levels. Yes. When they flooded um, last winter, there was quite a, an outcry eventually, and yes. a lot of money and effort was put forward in actually supporting the people there who were kind of being drowned effectively. Yes. Um, and that was considered to be at the very least a regional, if not a national disaster. Yes. My view about child sexual abuse and the historic abuse and the cases coming forward and the sheer volume of hurt children that we're hearing about constitutes, to my view, a national disaster. Do you think the resources for that will be found? No, <laughs> to be honest, mm. I don't. I, I would imagine there are various people who feel utterly beleaguered by the size of this problem. And it needs a big, big social change. And we need to make sure that we do need to make sure that young people are protected. But it's a huge problem. It's huge. And it's it just it we need a societal change really to recognize that this stuff is completely unacceptable and that you know if you behave in that way to somebody you are likely to be caught and you will pay the price now that may be a message that's now being understood but only because of the focus as you said on celebrity it's mm. only when you know the man whom everyone trusted to fix things was discovered to be the most odious and evil individual um but what that did was equally shine a light on you know the the health system the police every single person who was somewhat taken in by celebrity maybe it'll mean a change of our culture which i think can only be but it's a personal mm -hmm. view but only for the better where we don't celebrate um celebrity 
as being the be all and end all because you know being being terribly wealthy or having a lot of influence in one particular sphere or another doesn't mean you are a good person and that's been proven i think that's probably shaken people to their core but how one finds the money I don't mm. think it is some I don't know that it's actually something to do with money. I mean, one of the good things about the independent panel, and I have to say, you know, I don't share her politics, but I think Theresa May is absolutely determined to try and get to the bottom of this. It's just I don't think she realizes how very, very deep the well is. I think I would agree with you actually there. I, I mean, in some respects, what you were mentioning earlier on, I think law enforcement is getting better possibly. Well, only because they know they're going to get caught out well, if right. they don't do it properly. I mean, that's not a good place. It's a good place. It's a good place to start, but actually, you know, there's there's all sorts of things that we've sought to regulate, and you can't regulate. Um, you can't regulate for people to be the right people to do particular jobs. So, social workers, the best social workers, are the ones who care, and almost all social workers go into social work because they care the best nurses are the ones who care but actually what we've done over a period of years is actually say well you need to sit a series of exams to become this job or that job or the other job um and nobody ever measures what it is that makes someone a really good nurse or a really good doctor um and how do you measure that because it's so often judgmental it's how individuals respond to other individuals well would you agree that the um however good you are as a social worker or nurse whatever but i mean it, it you know you're only as good as the amount of work that you can actually do satisfactorily and yes. with and with the volume of work coming forward now in terms yes. of there are so many beleaguered social services departments up and down the country yes whose social workers are running around like trying to keep plates spinning on the end of sticks as yes, opposed actually, to being able to really get to to, to grips with the it's cases. A, it's a, yes, I mean, it's a, it's all of these cases need depth mm. and they need a depth of understanding and the ability to invest your time and your soul into it um, in order to get to the point where you're trusted and you're able to make changes for so, people. So that is a resource problem. It is a resource problem, but to be honest, my sense is that it's, a, it's so massive mm. that there's no way we could fund that. We just couldn't fund that as a country. We just couldn't. So what we have to do, perhaps, is turn turn the problem on its head and look at how how we support new parents, how we support children in schools, how we build our children's centre services so that they actually fit the needs. I mean, you know, I live in a rural area. It's absolutely hopeless um the, the children's center service has been dismantled mm. in the interest of saving money um with a complete lack of understanding of what it is that's so good about children's centers i've known and talked with a parliamentary colleague of yours coincidentally another tessa <laughs> tessa oh, yes tessa Jowell, the, over the years the tessa yes <laughs> who, who started sure start Yes. And at a recent conference that I, I invited her to speak at, she was talking in some ways about her disappointment, you know, of the underfunding and, and, and the lack of impetus that, that it's now experiencing. Um, because people with people paradoxically realising just how important the first few years of life uh, is in terms of determining the outcome for a child. Yes. I mean, I think you know, I've, I, I saw Martin Neri talk 
uh, actually, I think he was at a Lib Dem conference, interestingly enough, which is something that happens very rarely. He had the main stage and we were absolutely transfixed for about an hour and a half, two hours as he explained to us. And this would have been mm, maybe 10 years ago, possibly eight years ago. Um, but he explained how his work as um, in the it was NSPCC, wasn't it, I think? Mm -hmm. And and prior to that, as head of the prison service, um, how he was trying to explain to us the real importance of investing in very, very young children, as opposed to, as we were then, um, saying, OK, fine, we should concentrate on making sure that um, university is free for all to access. And he said, no, 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 you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. What you actually need to do is because... You know, young people will get to university if they need to do that. Never mind that. Forget that, you lot. Why don't you invest? Because if you look at children at the ages of two and three, I can tell you which ones are likely to end up being, you know, those mm. who engage with the prison service. And it, it made a big difference to my life. I can remember thinking, ooh. We need to do something about this. And of course, you know, we are doing some things. My lot are particularly keen on making sure we put money into schools in for, for very young people. And we started, you know, we've done things like introducing school lunches, free school lunches, which and it has to be a universal service so that there's no stigma attached to having a free school lunch. But, you know, Tessa, the other Tessa, Jal, had got it right. I, I, I think that's absolutely the case. She saw, she understood um, and Sure Start, children's centres, whatever you want to call them, are brilliant. The problem comes when people who don't understand, you know, maybe everyone should have a bit of a session with Martin Neary or whoever it is that says the same thing these days, I don't know. But it, it is, it's fundamental, I think, to make sure that we intervene where we must. And actually, in so many cases, we must. I went to, just as a quick example, I went to a school locally to have school lunches um, day before yesterday and the head teacher was explaining to me how so many of the children, they come to school, they are not school ready at all. They Their home existence, some of, quite a significant number of them, and this is in a lovely, lovely part of rural Somerset where no one would anticipate that this was a problem. I think, and that was that you know a lot of children who don't know how to hold a knife and fork at all. They don't know how to get themselves dressed. They don't know that some of them are not, um, not fully toilet trained. Um, they have, you know, they can't put their coats on. They can't, you know, all sorts of simple things. They've never sat down at a table. They don't know how to eat different types of food. Um, and this is really quite indicative of of the fact that we need to support parents who may not have had the learning themselves. Mm. Um, basic childcare. Basic childcare, but it's also, you know, when you think about it, it's, it's the, those, those parents can't deliver their basic childcare at home because they've not had it themselves from their parents. Some of the most difficult cases I ever came across as a social worker are difficult in terms of um, the kind of mental, the anguish it gave you was the kind of neglect by omission cases, yes. uh, other name for which where love is not enough. Yes. Um, yes. And effectively, these were the, you know, the, the, the parent just had no idea how to parent, but they loved their children. But yet, no, And that's why, that's why children's mm. centres are so brilliant. Mm. Because 
you can identify all the staff can identify so quickly and gently where there's a bit of a problem and just by example and with a bit of a gentle guiding hand can help people get over the difficulties of uh, you know and that's where you know oh excuse me um the that's where you know all of those people who work in children's centres, all of the people who work in residential care, everybody is so important. They're all part of the jigsaw. Um, so, you know. Well, let's let's take that as the last point because we've got to be coming to the end of this, oh, yes. um, unfortunately, um, quite <laughs> soon. But just as a final thing, I, yes. there you are. You've got the platform, a message to social workers and other social care staff out there at the moment, what, what kind of message would you offer to that community? I'd say you're so important and I think probably we don't give you the respect and the honour that you deserve because your role is utterly critical, utterly critical. And the the, the problem is that in our media-focused world, it's only when the shit hits the fan that somebody gets into the headlines. And that's so unfortunate because when things are going quietly, they're going well, and when you've got your head down and you're doing your job, nobody's going to recognise that necessarily. And what I'd say is thank you, thank you, thank you. Tessa Moon, pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks very much indeed there for Tessa. I mean, I hope you enjoyed that and got as much out of it as I did talking to her. And perhaps we can have her back on the programme at some future point. Now, my thanks as always to Alba Digital Media for helping put this podcast together. Thank you. And to you, again, a, a request for more feedback, please. Now, you can catch this, this down. You can download it on iTunes, Stitcher, Podfeed. You can tweet me at Dave Niven. Your feedback would be fabulous. Just please keep it coming. Um, there's also SpeakPipe, which is that one-click service on the website, which is uh, po- socialworldpodcast.com. Just click onto podcast, go on to SpeakPipe, leave me a message. And uh, as long as it's not too derogatory, I will report it and possibly even publish it in one of the next podcasts because it is the lifeblood of these podcasts is your feedback. So thanks again. Remember the Twitter handle at Dave Niven. Keep it coming and I very much look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.